0: Good morning, reading my church. Good morning. morning. It's always a joy to open God's word with you. Uh, If you are meeting me for the first time, my name is Samuel Iwuchuku, and I serve as one of the pastors here. I would encourage you to keep keep your Bible open, uh, as we would be walking through the book of Jonah, chapter 1. But before that, let's pray and ask God for help. Let us pray. Father, thank you because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you because if not for Christ, the book of Jonah remains incomplete. Thank you because of the fulfillment and the hope that comes from knowing that regardless of our weakness, that you continue to be a faithful God. Would you please walk in our heart? and in our mind, and in our soul, and in our flesh, and in our eyes, our head, and every part of our being, so that we will see that we cannot do without you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Our text this morning is a famous children's story um, in the Bible. If you have read the book of Jonah, or someone has told you a story about the book of Jonah, uh, there is something that comes to mind. If I ask you what is it that comes to mind when you think of the book of Jonah, what would you say? Fish. fish. It's interesting that uh, fish stands out amongst every other thing we we'll see in the book. Now here's the thing, I love fish, I hope you do, um, I, I, I know some friends who don't eat fish, uh, I'm not judging you, it could be because of health reason or just because you don't like fish. Um, But the truth is this, if you come to the book of Jonah, it is not about fish. The book of Jonah is not about fish. We are looking at a narrative text that is filled with different unique characters and miracles and accounts and things, just like fish swallowing. Um, We'll see plant and beast made to fast in chapter 4, we'll see plant uh, you know, God causing plan to, to grow in the morning and wither the next day. We'll see different things that makes this book an interesting, interesting book. It has different climatic points. It has different resolutions. And if we don't pay attention, we are likely to lose the point of that book. God's plan unfolds in the book of Jonah. And which is our main text, our main point today? And it is that God saves. Our God is a God who saves. Salvation belongs to God. The book is written for us to see the sovereignty of God, to see God for who he really is. And not only that, it's also written for us to to pay attention to the idols in our hearts. And see ways that we have replaced our will over God's will. As I mentioned, God's plan unfolds in the scriptures. It unfolds in different parts and different places in the Bible. The same thing we'll see in the book of John, in Jonah. He uses different people and event to bring people to himself. And just as Jonah was sent as a means of grace and warning and salvation to the people of Nineveh, God's grace is displayed through the grace of the one who is greater than Jonah. Jesus, the one for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross so that we can become, you and I, seated here, can become recipients of God's grace. So, as we engage the text, I would encourage us to to examine ourselves. You know, see ways God's grace is at work in you. And not only that, just like Jonah, see ways that you might probably be running from God. Pay attention to the idols of your heart. Pay attention to the idols that have, that has a deep root in yourself, in your life that in many ways you might begin to flaunt your will and mistake it for God's will. We will narratively look at this text on that three points. The first point is the grace that sent, and we see this from verse 1 to 3. We see the grace that pursues and saves. We see this from verse 4 to 16. And lastly, we see the grace of God in verse 17. The first point, the grace that sends. See, the opening verses of Jonah introduces us to what is a common pattern of God's communication between himself and the prophets. We see this everywhere. You see the prophet book in the Bible. This is it. This is what it is. Now, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. God has a message to deliver. He calls his prophet, sends them, and what should happen? The prophet does what? Obeys and go. We see this with both the major and the minor prophet. We see in Ezekiel, we see in Isaiah, we see in Amos, we see in Hosea, different prophets, the same pattern of call. Now, but as common as you would probably find this pattern in the Bible, when it comes to Jonah, there are some unusual things about it. And I will try to point, just help us to see the three unusuals that we we'll see in the book of Jonah chapter 1. The first is the place Jonah is sent to. Jonah was sent to go to Nineveh. The text The author of Jonah says, Nineveh is a great city. See, just to give us a bit of context about this Nineveh, it's a city built by a man called Nimrod. Nimrod is the great-grandson of Noah. Nimrod was regarded in the Bible in Genesis chapter 10 as the first man to be a mighty man. So we are looking at a man who is great, who also built the the kingdom of Babel. you remember the story of the Tower of Babel? So at the point when God scattered the the language while they were building the tower, probably Nimrod moved into Assyria and built the city of Nineveh. It was the most important city in the empire of Assyria. It's important for a lot of reasons, not just because of its greatness. It's important because of the nature of what Nineveh does to stay powerful. The book of Jonah doesn't give us a lot of information about this great city and what happens in it. But when you go to prophet Nahum, we have an idea of, of what it means for Nineveh to be a great city and what makes them great. In Nahum chapter 3 verse 1 to 4, Nineveh is described as a bloody city, all full of lies, and plunder with no end to the prey. It's regarded as a host of slain, heaps of corpses, dead bodies without end. They stumble over bodies. This is a city of evil. This city is known for idolatry. They they, they worship different gods. They worship the, the, the god of Ishtar. Ishtar is a goddess of love and war. See, an author noted that the city and the mere mention of its name retained its negative impact upon the memory of the Hebrews long after the city's destruction. Even in the early church, Nineveh came to be regarded as the symbol of devil himself. This is a great city full of evil. So when you think of Jonah being sent Jonah and Israelite who have in many ways observed and seen what this city is all about so this assignment becomes uncomfortable it's not one that you want to go to it's unusual because in many ways Nineveh does not deserve warning what it deserves is destruction Their atrocities is high. They are entrenched in evil to the point that God is saying their evil has come up against me. But we know that the mission of God is not about how we feel or our will. God's mission is about His will. It's dependent on Him. So, the second reason why I think it's an unusual call uh, is about the prophet himself. Jonah is a good guy, at least to the people of Israelite. It was recorded that this man, the son of Amittai, as we see in our text, Jonah means dove, Amittai means faithfulness. So, if you put that together, we are looking at a man that can be described as Dove, peaceful the son of faithfulness but we know that what we know about Jonah is nothing close to faithfulness In 2 Kings, 2 Kings chapter 4 verse 25, Jonah is identified as a prophet in northern Israel during the king of uh, Jeroboam II This king is an evil king as scripture records it's evil because he is king who worships other gods, who is causing his people to worship other gods. And God has sent different prophets at different times. Think of Hosea, the book of Hosea, you read Amos, you see in many ways God has sent warning to this king. But Jonah is the only prophet who prophesied prosperity to King Jeroboam. So he is loved, at least to his people and to the king. And if you're thinking of any man to be sent on this mission, probably not Jonah. Maybe Amos, Hosiah, the ones with strong warning. Here is what Tim Keller said in his book, The Prodigal Prophet. Jonah, in the book, the original reader of the book of Jonah would have remembered him as immensely patriotic a highly partisan nationalist so they would have been amazed at why God would send this man instead of sending maybe Amos but regardless of the status of Jonah in Israel you would expect that a prophet of God knows that when the word of the Lord comes to you You obey. He's a man who should understand or who understands his office that it's not just the natural one, but the supernatural one. It's a divine calling to be a prophet of God. But what do we see? The opposite. And then you begin to wonder if Jonah really understands the word in Exodus chapter 34 verse 6. The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and truth. A prophet of God who doesn't have a good understanding of who God is. And then the third reason why I think this message is unusual, it's the message itself. Nineveh doesn't deserve warning, at least to Jonah and to the people of Israel. What they deserve is destruction. I mean, you hear what they do. The first thing that comes to mind is why is God keeping them? Why should there be a warning to them? But we know that God is a God of mercy. Yahweh is a God of mercy. Who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And when the word came to Jonah, what did Jonah do? He rose up, stood up, go. He did go, but he went the opposite direction. To Jonah, this mission is a wrong message for the wrong people. Where did Jonah run to? Our text in 3 says he ran to Tarshish, right? But running to Tarshish, it's not just a problem. The problem is that he was running from the presence of the Lord. He rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tashish, away from the presence of the Lord. Twice we see the phrase repeated, away from the presence of the Lord. Tashish has been estimated by scholars as 2,500 miles away from Nineveh in opposite direction in modern-day Spain. Uh, but this is where Jonah chose to run to. Jonah, the dove, the son of faithfulness, the prophet of God, is clearly not faithful. Is clearly not obedient, because when you think of what faithfulness means, it's being faith full, trusting in the one who sends. And then you begin to wonder what is at the roots of Jonah's Um, unfaithfulness. It is sin. The nature of sin, the rebellious nature, fleeing from the presence of God, is a first indication of disobedience to God. Because Jonah, to him, God cannot be a merciful God. Or maybe he can be merciful to Israel but he cannot be a merciful God to anyone outside the border of Israel. Nineveh, a Gentile nation. God cannot show mercy. This is an outward, open context with Jonah and God's character. How do we know that this is the reason for Jonah's running? And not just because he's afraid of what will happen to him in, in, in Nineveh? Or because of the atrocity? Look at chapter 4, verse 2 of, of Jonah. And what I think is the central verse that holds the book of Jonah together. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God, and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. This is who God is. Jonah understands this, but he doesn't really understand it. He knew why he was running. He knows who he's running from. His view of God is correct, apt, this is why I'm running, because I know you would show mercy. And while you are looking, it's, it's a word that shows and reveals the disconnect between what Jonah knows about God and, and the true condition of his heart. I know you, God. I know you are a merciful God. But according to my will, your mercy is limited. That's what Jonah is saying. His action is nothing less but an open rebellion against God's sovereignty. It is my will, God, not yours. Right? You cannot show mercy to these people because according to my standard and office, they don't deserve mercy. This is what Jonah is saying. By running from the presence of God, or at least thinking he's running from the presence of God. And if I could give us a little bit picture of what this is, it's just for our own application. Is you read the Great Commission, go here and make disciples baptizing them, and then you say no. Could you see how ridiculous that sounds? But that is true. Is that who we are as a church? Our mission is to take the gospel message. And once our affection for one another, and which is good, becomes greater than our affection and hope for salvation for those outside, for those who are not yet followers of Christ. Once our affection for one another is greater than that, looks like we're beginning to lose and miss the point of our calling as believers. Our mission is to go and make disciples. When our disobedience is to rebel against God, God comes with both mercy and judgment. And that was, that's what we see with Jonah here. And if I could ask a further diagnostic question, maybe to help us to, to understand what we are talking about. And I begin to ask us the question, who are you hoping in your heart that doesn't receive God's grace? Who have offended you that in your mind God cannot be merciful to that person? Who have you not forgiven? Who are you holding back in extending the same measure of grace you have received to? But yet you are a follower of Christ. Now, I don't mean grace as an expression of word, I mean grace as an act of love and mercy and hope and the bringing the gospel of salvation, the gospel of Jesus to such people. As we said, in the eyes of Jonah, Nineveh doesn't deserve mercy. But in the face of God, in the eyes of God, friends, we've all received mercy. Without God's grace and mercy, you cannot sit here. And Jonah could, you know, there are some ways we could justify it. Probably Jonah would do that. Okay, God, Nineveh is a city of evil. What they deserve is destruction. Let's go to Tashish. Okay. I'm convinced that that is where I should go. I have prayed about it. There is peace in my heart. I have the fund. Let's go to Tashish. They deserve your mercy. Not Nineveh. Does that sound familiar to us? Is that... How do we process this? Because in many ways, we could say all of the deep truth about God, but deep down in our heart, what we are seeking is our comfort. What we are seeking is escape. While you are saying the good things, in many ways, what we're really seeking is comfort. And I'm not trying to sound legalistic here, but I think the book of Jonah is written for us to examine ourselves and see the deep-rooted act of disobedience to God. How are you running away from God? How, are you, how do you think you are running from the presence of God? What are you running from? What is the root? What is at the root of your action? Jonah flee to Tarshish, but our God continues to be sovereign. Our God is a merciful God. You know, you might be wondering, okay, why, why, should, Jonah, why should God continue to go after Jonah? Friends, our God is a God who goes after us with both mercy and grace. Which is our second point. The grace that pursues. Jonah doesn't deserve God's mercy, probably in the mind of many of us. He's disobedient, so God should keep him on the side. At least there are so many other prophets who could fulfill the mission, who could take the message. But Psalm 103 verse 10 tells us that God does not deal with us according to our sins. Nor does he repay us according to our iniquities. He is a God who is slow to anger. And then you could just imagine and try to rephrase that word and say he is a God who is fast to anger. And you could begin to imagine what our situation would be. Our God is slow to anger, He continues to pursue. He goes after Jonah, and as we begin to see from verse four, how did he do that? As Jonah attempted to run, it evoked a reaction. God sent and use the word "haul," as the text says, "Haul a storm on the sea." And there was a mighty tempest, the first miracle in the book of Jonah, not the fish. God goes after the people he loves. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. And then in the book, we are then introduced to these interesting characters, the mariners, who in many ways just my favorite in chapter one. Um, These were the people Jonah paid to take him to Tarshish. Okay? A special guest, probably packed off all his properties or whatever with some money in his pocket and maybe in many ways told his family I'm going to Tashish. God has sent me um, and, and the mariners welcomed him on board he paid so they would have given him a good cabin and maybe a king size mattress because in many ways you can't explain the kind of sleep he was experiencing while under sea in the midst of storm so maybe he has a very comfortable bed you know but immediately became clear to the mariners that this is going to be a very long sail on the sea as God hauled the storm, this, the, the, hauled the storm on the sea Jonah's act of disobedience is beginning to catch up and not only to him but to the mariners It's beginning to threaten their sheep. that's going to break up, their source of livelihood. It's beginning to threaten their lives. They could probably die. And what was the prophet of Yahweh doing? Sleeping. The one who knows God. The one who has heard from God. These are pagan worshippers, by the way. But Jonah is a prophet of God. I do not know why again. I I try. Maybe I'll probably speak to some of my professors to tell me why Jonah was really sleeping and what kind of sleep came on him. I don't I don't have enough interpretations to say this is what happened, but something that I know is this. Jonah was a man who is in spiritual slumber. He didn't, in many ways, just didn't understand the God that has called him. He was sleeping. You know? And while they were afraid and calling on their gods, the mariners, the prophet, was in deep sleep. And if you probably do not know the context of the passage, you would, as a believer, see it and say, Jonah has the peace that comes from God. I mean, in the face of storm and you are sleeping, it looks like everything is looking good for him. God is going to save him after all. But we know the context enough to know that this is a man in spiritual slumber. He's, something has happened to Jonah. Something has happened to Jonah that it's beginning to have consequences on those who are on the ship with him. See, sin has consequences, friends. Our act of disobedience could be hurting others. Our act of Not obeying God's command could have negative impact on the life of those around us. Husbands, how are you neglecting your spiritual role? And how is that impacting the lives of your children and wife and family? You can make enough excuse for yourself, but God's word is God's word. What is happening in your heart? Members, how do you think you are running from God? Sufficient excuse. You can run from the presence of God. How are you neglecting your roles? Members meeting is for some people, not for us. Service is for some people, not for some. How are you Looking to serve the body that you are part of. See, the book of Jonah is indeed a mirror for us, but it's also a means of God's grace and mercy. He does not deal with us as we deserve. Verse 5 tells us that the mariners were afraid, professional sailors. So they see for many years uh, with enough experience, knows their onion. But this storm is a different one. Whatever is causing them to be afraid that they are beginning to call on their gods, it's different. They know what a weather, bad weather looks like. They've seen storms, but whatever is triggering their fear here is unusual. And then you hope that the prophet of God, after being woken up from his slumber, would see the fear in the eyes of these guys and say, okay, maybe it's time for me to obey. But it took an act of lot casting, casting of lot for Jonah to really admit that he was responsible for whatever is happening. God, but he, as action, his disobedience is threatening the life of the mariners here. The act of lot casting is a common practice we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. God uses the act of casting lot to help His people, the Israelites, determine His will. We see in Acts chapter one verse. Uh, verse 26, where the the, the apostles, we are trying to replace Judas. They used the the act of casting lots to select Matthias. But something is is important to note in the act of Lot casting. To be singled out by Lot, casting is to be divinely selected. There is an act of supernatural to it in the time of Jonah and in the time of the apostles. Jonah, the lot is on you. Okay. Who are you? Tell us what... Probably what is your name? Where are you from? Who are you? And what did Jonah say? I am Hebrew. I am a Hebrew. And what? Interesting. I fear the Lord, the God of heaven... Who made the sea and the dry land? I mean, you read that and you, you probably smile to yourself and it's like, Jonah. You can't know this about who God is and think your means of escape is through the sea. The God who made the sea. The God who made the dry land. The creator of God. And you think the one who, you want to run away from him through the things he created. See, what we are seeing, friends, it's a man who has an absolute disconnect between his theology and his obedience. Jonah knows God, but Jonah doesn't really know God. He knows a lot about the Bible. He knows a lot about God's grace. But when that comes to action, Jonah is clearly in contention with God's character. See, we see the sailors here, right? They were pagans who worshipped other gods and not Yahweh. They've called their gods, yet the storm continues to do what? Get stronger. God, every time they feel like they know better, God throws in a little bit of tempo there, and the storm goes higher. Jonah, as I said, our life is in danger. You have brought this on us. What should we do? What should we do to appease your God? Look at what Jonah said in verse 12. He said to them, pick me up and do what? Haul me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. He's right about that. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. He's right about that. But then what is the problem here? The message to Jonah wasn't to go and die. The message was for him to go to Nineveh. And then you begin to wonder, okay, Jonah now understands this. He cares for these people. He wants them to be alive. Throw me into the sea. But we continue to see a man that something has happened in his heart that he would rather die than to see Nineveh saved. He would rather die than to see the mercy of God extend to the city of Nineveh. Did you remember what we read in chapter 4, verse 2? This is why I don't want to go, because I know that you are a merciful God, and you would show mercy. What a man. And you probably read, you know, Jonah chapter 0 verse 0, which doesn't exist. Um, And this is a man loved in Israel. Remember, he prophesied prosperity. He prophesied extension of Israel's border to a king who is evil. So the king will love him. The people will love him. He has a flourishing ministry. He has the best theological and spiritual expression. His knowledge of the Bible is apt. His father's name means faithfulness. But it took God sending Jonah on a mission Jonah didn't like for us to see the the heart of Jonah. Tim Keller used the word racism. Jonah would rather see Nineveh destroyed than for them to receive God's mercy. What is happening to your heart, friends? Is it possible that you could be experiencing the same thing Jonah is experiencing? The man with a the sound theology who says, I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, yet unwilling to obey. It takes, it takes a lot for you to be at this place. But we know, again, a merciful God who does not fail to show mercy to his people. Pressed on Jonah. Pressed on on the Nineveh or on the on the on the the, the pagan worshippers and from verse 13 to 16 as the mariners felt the need to now take matters in their hand okay we know Jonah it's you you've prayed maybe probably not pray to your God we've prayed and nothing happened okay let's try and paddle this this ship let's sail to a dry land let's try and fix this and what did God do increase the temple further a sovereign God, who created the sea and the dry land. You know, God in his humor, okay, Jonah, you want to run to Tarshish? Um, Okay. My plan is to save the people of Nineveh. My plan is to show mercy. But then, if you want to bring these pagans along, okay, let's do it. Jonah's disobedience becomes a means of grace to these pagans God is a sovereign God friends we can't say that enough our God is a sovereign God he's the one who created the sea and the dry land he's the one who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love he's the one whose life and death is in his hand he's a God who is in control And his mission will go on. The question is, are you part of it? Are you obeying the call to go make disciples of all nations? Are you evangelizing at any opportunity you have? This is a convicting test for you and I. It's a mirror for us to see ourselves. Have you become so comfortable in your obedience that it begins to, in your disobedience, that it begins to look like God's will to you? See, God uses challenges sometimes to awaken us. He uses it to, to save these pagans. Do you take time to think through what God is teaching you in the moment where you are facing challenges or where you are facing the storm in your own life? Or do you want to do it by yourself? It is true that you know there are challenges that comes to our life that is not as a cause of our sin or what we have done we see that example in John chapter 9 as Jesus was responding to the disciples about the blind the man who was blind from birth said so not his sin on that of his parents was responsible for this but it is what that the work of God might be displayed in him there are, there, are, there are storms like that. But there are also storms that is caused by our disobedience that God uses to shake us off a bit. And that's what we see with Jonah here. And you would expect at least two responses when you are in this storm. It's either you run to God or you are running from God or you continue to run or think you are running from God. The pagans... Turned back and feared God and made a vow. What did Jonah do? Throw me into the sea. They, he could have asked them to take him back, to obey. But when he said throw me into the sea, I'd rather die than to see Tashish saved. You see, our passage ends with The third point, which I call the grace of God. And you you see that from verse 17. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days and three nights. So if you turn to Matthew 12, where, you know, TJ read for us earlier. As as the Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus and, and, and get him, you know, they were trying every means, and they were asking for a sign. Show us a sign. And what did Jesus say to them? An evil and adulterous generation seek for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of prophet Jonah. Sufficient enough, for just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Christ, the Son of God, is here. Friends, that is why you and I are seated here today. Because just as the sign of Jonah in the belly of the fish and Jonah's, you know, action led to the to so the salvation of these pagan worshippers, so has Christ's death brought salvation to us. And this is better, because in him we have security. Romans 5.10 tells us, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. The grace of God saves. The grace of God keeps. Jesus is the better Jonah. He is the one who calms the storm. While Jonah was running from the mission to warn the Nineveh, Jesus was running to save us, you and I. That is who you should look to. In case you are here and you're thinking to yourself, I can do it better than Jonah, I'm sorry you've missed the point of the sermon. You cannot Jesus, the better Jonah, the one who, for the joy that was set before him, walked the cross for us, is who you should run to. He's the one who is going to help you in your weakness. He's the one who is, you can run to when you identify some of the idols in your heart. Again, you're thinking of the idea of casting lots. He is the one that the final lot was cast on. Jesus is the better Jonah. If you're a follower of Christ and you're thinking to yourself, okay, you know, what should I do? The, the, the book of Jonah is God's grace to us. You know, through his weakness, it's a mirror for us to examine and see the struggles of our Christian lives. Not to be better than Jonah. Not only are we saved by God's grace. But we are equally sustained by his grace. If there is something you are tempted to hide or run away, you don't need to. Just come to God. You don't need to feel comfortable in your disobedience. Our God is merciful. I am not. God is. Our God is gracious. I might not be, but he is. Come to him. Share with one another and together walk to the throne of grace. He is a sovereign God. He is a God who saves. And for those who are not following Jesus, and you are wondering, how should I respond? This is another extension of God's grace, another extension of mercy to you. Look at the cross, friends. Look at the cross because that is where mercy and justice meet. On Christ. He is the better Jonah. You cannot look to anything else. You can only look to Christ for your salvation. We want to meet with you. Speak to someone in the church. Speak to one of the pastors. Speak to the person next to you and ask them, how can I come to the throne of grace? How can I receive mercy? Because his arms are wide open to welcome us. Let us pray. Father, I will thank you because your word is true. Thank you, because if not for your grace, we will be of all men most miserable. We pray that would you continue to help us to see the need to constantly run to you. That together, as friends, that we would seek the need to be part of a community that stirs us up and help us to see what, where we are struggling and that as, as, a, as, as members, that we would talk to one another, that we would seek the good of others, that we would... Think less about ourselves and think more about you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.